0: And Welcome to the Jewish New Year. We are coming at this with a completely fresh slate, having atoned for all of our sins, either yesterday, if you're observant, and if you're not, well, hopefully you atone at some other point in life. Today is October 7th. We are getting really close. It's 25 days until the Israeli elections. I'm Dalia Shenlin here in Haaretz Studios with Enchel Pfeffer. Hi, (laughs) Enchel. Thank you. I'm absolutely sure all the Jewish-Israeli politicians did a great deal of atoning for their biggest sin of all, which is wasting our tax dollars by holding election after election. Now... This election campaign is frustrating for people in many ways. I mean, politicians, that is. Us analysts are thrilled with elections. Do you think some of the politicians are just a teeny bit sorry now that they took us down this road of elections number five, Anshul?
1: Well, I think that uh, there certainly are some politicians who spent uh, Yom Kippur examining their deeds and... decisions over the past year. I'm sure Neil Orbach, who until very recently was one of the main uh, whips of this coalition, uh, did uh, a lot of soul searching. And was he right to have been the the man who ultimately brought down the coalition as despite his thoughts and hopes that he would find a a realistic spot on one of the lists running in the next election? He's going to be unemployed in in, in in just a few weeks. So he's certainly done a lot of uh, questioning of himself. I think probably also another of the stars. I mean, these names will be forgotten very soon. Who's going to remember Nero?
0: That is so true. We think these are the most important people I mean, right opened, now. And news bulletins going to
1: th- just three months ago, every day. What is he going to do? The same thing goes for Raida Rinauizabi, the Merits uh, Knesset member, n- who is no longer on the Merits list as well. She's lost her job and any prospect of getting a job from the government, because they were all kind of talking, about sending her, right? her somewhere to be the consul in Shanghai and things like that. And uh, by extension, I think that amongst the party leaders, probably the one, I don't know if he spent any time praying, it's not really his tendency, but uh, uh, certainly the one who probably is most disappointed with himself And Yom Kippur, Nitsan Horovitz said boss, or, or should have been the boss of Ms. Uh, Rinawi Zoabi and... According to many people, even he's admitted it kind of took his eye off the ball. And that was one of the things leading to this coalition, the solution. But then being politicians, I don't think they're really very much inclined to blaming themselves.
0: Well, personally, I think that's a problem. Now, of course, our non-Jewish leaders, Arab politicians of any faith or the atheists among them, might be doing some soul searching around now as well. Because, first of all, what else is there to do on Yom Kippur with everything shut down? But also, there is a fresh new survey from Makan, the Arabic language, Israel TV, showing just 39% of the Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel plan to vote at present. The last survey I saw focusing on Arab citizens was about a month ago, and it showed the exact same rate. So we're seeing no movement in dynamics for turnout among Arabs in Israel. Now, we discussed this in the last episode, so if you missed it, you just need to go and listen to our last episode. The real question is, Is this it? Are we not going to see any change in this electoral uh, turnout dynamic until the end? And is there any reason to think it might change? Angel? what do you think? I
1: think we'll see lots of changes.
0: In turnout and potential for Arab turnout? We
1: have no idea. I mean, a fifth consecutive election is unprecedented. It's a post-pandemic election. That's not something we've had before. It's a fifth Every election we're having in this series is is new and unprecedented. So talking about turnout... In general, the general population as well as the Arab sector, I think, is slightly. We, we have to take a pinch of salt in any prediction, even the best of polling. And we know it's difficult to poll that even issue. The best. And you've explained it to me in the past that turnout is one of the things that pollsters have trouble at some level to 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 predict.
0: At this stage, it gets much more accurate, though. The closer okay. you get to the elections.
1: But I think that these unprecedented factors are are, are doubly true when it comes to the Arab sector's turnout because. On top of what we've just mentioned, they, ha- they haven't they have had three separate par- Arab parties running in the election since 2013. And re- and remember, in 2013, it actually boosted turnout, the fact that there were three parties competing for the vote. There was a re- relative to the low Arab turnout. But that it was still got one. much higher in 2015. But then the, the parties got the and then they split. So who knows what the factors are going to be here. And also, this is the very first election in which the Arab-Israeli voters are going to be going to the polls after having had an independent Arab party in the coalition. That is very unprecedented. That, that's never happened before. That Could that affect the turnout? Could it turn it? Could it push it down? Could it boost it at the last moment? Who knows? And I think also unforeseeable events will also play here a role, whether it's some terrible act of police violence against Arab Israeli citizens or some very radical thing that perhaps Netanyahu or one of his partners will say against the Arab minority. They could either push it down, it could boost up. Who knows? And I think we're. We could see something very different than what the polls are saying now, or it could be just as bad or or even worse. Who knows?
0: I mean, the sad thing is we know that whenever the right wing goes on the attack against the Arab community in Israeli elections, it's often considered something that boosts their turnout. I mean, this is the terrible, tragic irony that it somehow serves both the right and the Arab community. But we'll have to see. So one more thing about Yom Kippur before we leave that behind us. You know, Angela and I, we are both a little bit stymied on the following question of whether Benjamin Netanyahu fasted. We just don't really know. But why did we even, why did this even come up? That's because yesterday... At the very end of the fast, as far as I understand, during the prayers of N'ilah, he wasn't feeling very well and he was rushed to the hospital for tests. He stayed overnight. He seems to be fine. He's been released. We wish him refuah shlema, of course, but we don't really know the mysteries of his inner spiritual life,
1: do we? I'm not going to speculate on whether Netanyahu himself fasted or not yesterday, I don't think. I think that is very much... Every person's private. Uh, those are parts of the private life of politicians, which I'm not going to go into.
0: But is there political significance? So to yes, it? I think
1: there is, and I think we saw by the way that Netanyahu's office has been trying to spin this. First of all, the way they said he he arrived independently at the hospital for for, for a checkup. Now there's a. Uh, he, Netanyahu is a former prime minister, perhaps a future prime minister. There's no such he thing as arriving a anywhere independently. Security details, not like oh, he took the bus or he walked to Shari uh, Hospital. He was taken by a convoy, not a massive one because he's not the serving prime minister, but a significant convoy of vehicles. He did not arrive independently at the hospital. That's the first thing. The first way they've been trying to spin is, and the other thing is that today when. As expected and we're all very happy that the report came that all his uh everything seems fine and all his medical checks this morning were fine and he's been released from shara tzedek he's gone for his morning walk now why is it has he gone for morning i don't know but why is it so important because at the end of the day a lot of voters are still certainly those who are older than 30 remember the sharon episode when there was a there was the first episode which didn't seem serious
0: and, and, he, was with his and he was joking he with his doctor No, he he
1: was calling up journalists that very evening. And I remember they got the the television journalists on time when they were still they were still broadcasting, and I remember like Ayala Hassan on uh, I think it was she was then on Channel Thirteen, overjoyed that she had just spoken to the Prime Minister on the phone. And he but was most importantly,
0: I will tell you what I remember is that Eretzne Deret, a wonderful country, our favorite political satire show had a satire well, our only, of Ariel our only Sharon. Political satire show, no, we yeah. also have Yudim Bayim, which is very political. But anyway, they had a great uh, caricature parody of Ariel Sharon getting out of the hospital in his tracksuit, jumping up and down, doing. Jumping jacket. And, so and then ten days later,
1: there came the the stroke that from which he would never arise. And I don't think that Netanyahu is in a similar medical situation to Sharon. Sharon was a beast. People who saw Netanyahu an hour before on the way, to, I, I spoke to someone who saw him on the way to Shul, on the way to Nila Said he looked great. Him and Sarah walking down the street in Rechavia, and they both looked. As, as as well as you could expect a 73-year-old to look. But that's the fact. He is about to turn 73 in 10 days, just before the election. He's a grandfather of five, something which he doesn't usually like to talk about. He wants to, to, to look the picture of health, and this is something that Likud needs to nip in the bud. I have no idea what if there's anything beyond that that's being hidden from. I have no reason to believe that there is underlying medical situation, but this is something that Likud is certainly worried about. Netanyahu is, is worried not about his medical situation, but about what Israelis think his medical situation is. That's
0: right. And he's certainly worried and concerned or taking care for what his own voters think and what voters of his bloc may think. And it's not a bad uh, incident to remind people that he did go to Ne'ilah. And we all, we're talking about that today partly because our main topic is going to be the 12 to 14 percent of Israeli Jewish adults who are uh, religious by their own self-definition. They are largely right-wing. We're talking 88 to 95 percent self-defined right-wing, at least in my surveys. Angel, you might have different views on that. But the point is, we are counting or he is counting on that population to support his block. And we want to talk about their big dilemmas in this show. We're going to be inviting a fantastic expert in to discuss it. That's Yair Ettinger. But before we get there, let's talk about a few more of the quick headline updates. Angel, what do you think are the most important? quick developments that we're seeing over these last two weeks since our last show.
1: You mean more important than Netanyahu's uh, health? There is
0: very little more important than Netanyahu in this country, but a few things.
1: Except, well, obviously, the main issue, and this is not directly linked to the election, but any important issue will be di- uh, connected to the election, and this is the impending, it's still... Hasn't yet been signed.
0: Feverish final negotiations. Uh,
1: Agreement between Israel and Lebanon over how to divide the economic waters of the two countries in Israel's north and south of Lebanon. I see you're
0: using the terminology of the current government as opposed to the right-wing opposition terminology Mm -hmm. that these are territorial demarcations and part of Israeli sovereignty and we're giving it up. I mean, this is a big issue. Obviously, narrative
1: is important, but economic waters are not sovereign territory. So... And the, the argument is over how to exploit them. Uh, but yes, there is also an issue, at least in the public's mind here, of sovereignty, even though legal... Jargon says this is not this is not sovereign. We have
0: to explain that's because Israel demarcated this line unilaterally and it was never really internationally recognised. But now there it's are major also international in
1: treaties and things about how how it should work. Uh, this, is, this is not the subject of our podcast. The question is, how will this translate into the in the election? Will this become an issue in the election? And you're right. The word sovereignty is a powerful word. One that obviously Likud and its allies and Netanyahu himself are all utilising here, and they're hoping that this is something that they can use to, once again, attack the government as being weak and and and, and basically for capitulating to Hezbollah. Lapid and his partners are trying to show we are the efficient, serious government who have finally landed an agreement and defused what could have become a war between Israel and Hezbollah. The Americans probably thought that they were also helping out the government by... Helping you know, by putting quite a lot of diplomatic effort into into bringing about this agreement, which once again has yet to be signed, it may turn out not to have been such a great favor to the government. But it very much depends on how two very, very successful uh, PR experts, Yair Lapid and Benjamin Netanyahu, are going to spin this and who's going to give the better. A version to the Israeli public.
0: I think this is a very interesting situation where uh, I would slightly, very slightly disagree with your characterization that the public thinks of this as a matter of sovereignty. Because I'm going to venture that the vast majority of the Israeli public did not really follow this issue closely before the deal was announced just a few days ago. No, I, everybody. I had agree, to do, but yeah. the question is who is going to who's going to be able to so an impression question, in the exactly.
1: public's mind, and will it be of an efficient government getting the job done or of a weak, need defeat his government conceding Israeli sovereignty. Exactly, and that's
0: why I think this is such an interesting test case of whether within a few days one side or the other will really be able to own the narrative, as we say, Uh, And I think that it's going to matter because Yair Lapide is trying very hard and fairly successfully, to be honest, to show himself as a leader on foreign affairs, which was, of course, one of Netanyahu's biggest strengths and one of his biggest points of pride. He campaigned on it in the past. Everybody's heard me say this before, and this is just another mark. If it would work out, if it if it does get signed, and if Lapide and the government manage to convince the public of how good it is and how much of a win win situation it is, and at the same time, it's
1: it's a vulnerability in which Netanyahu can try and take away this advantage that Le Pen has accumulated over the last three months. But what else sense,
0: happened? But I just want to say, in this sense, isn't this basically just going to shore up all of their current block supporters on each side?
1: Which is why our to- our question of whether there is anywhere a swing vote between the two blocks becomes even more important. We'll get to that very what going to be soon. That's we're talking
0: about. So what else is important? We have some of the... Let's, I'm, I'm kind of trying to think of how to characterize the next two items we were thinking of discussing. They are both items that reinforce the current direction of the current party. So, for example, Meirav Micheli has been fighting for the right of the Tel Aviv light rail, which is currently under construction, shutting down the entire city for the meantime. But hopefully it will be much more efficient for later when that light rail is finally built. And she has been asserting that it needs to run on Shabbat. This is something that everybody kind of expected of her. Some people are disappointed she didn't take a stronger stance on this before. It's absolutely reinforcing what people think Labour already stands for. Angela, is this going to make any difference, or is just just kind of driving home the point? This is who we are. We didn't get everything done perfectly, but this is what we would do and and work on in the next government if we're part of it.
1: Well, sadly, it's not going to make any difference. Mirab Micheli has been the minister for the past year plus
0: of transportation.
1: Yes, that is why she is the one dealing with the light rail. And an issue which has been an issue for many years of public transport and shabbat, it's not just about the light rail. You can just have a bus running a shabbat. You don't need to dig up half of Tel Aviv to do that. That hasn't progressed over the last year of her term. And whatever she says now is pretty immaterial because, yes, there are various planning procedures that need to be in place whether or not what what will be the timetable of the light road which is supposed to begin when in next about, november okay, Exactly. thank you so over a year from now so this is very much gesture politics this is uh, also an attempt by maria michaeli to make her portfolio relevant all the way to the election because people aren't going to be noticing that much transport policy in the next few weeks And so, this is one way of doing it beyond that, I don't see I don't see very much coming out of this. and do
0: you see anything special coming out of the fact that re Derry is now saying that if for some reason he is disqualified from running from from being uh, uh, a minister that he will his party will try to pass legislation to overturn that isn't that just so consistent with everything that this side of the political map has stood for and the challenges to the court over recent years is this going to change anybody's mind?
1: Yes and no. in recent years, Derry has tried to be. Had to try to adopt a softer tone towards the courts, both for his own personal reasons. He needed the plea bargain to end his own tax fraud case. And for various tactical reasons, they decided it's not always the best thing to to be head on. And also Netanyahu had his periods of blowing hot and cold. And it seems that both him and Netanyahu are now ramping up a more strident type of rhetoric one would assume to try and bring out the vote. They don't think that, that, that they have any wavering voters between the blocs. They need to eke out as we've said, and as we keep on saying here, their own bases turn
0: out. Okay. We should also mention that following our last episode, which was two weeks ago, both Balad and Amichai Shikli were disqualified by the Central Election Committee based on different laws and different reasoning. But that's not the final word. Of course, that is the first stage of a process, which then is almost inevitably appealed to the Supreme Court. That Supreme Court decision will be handed down after this episode. And we'll as we're speaking
1: time. on Thursday morning... The session is ongoing both on Shikli and on Ballant, and I think also on a, a appeal against the fact that the CEC says Edith Silman can run. All these things will be resolved in the next. Day or so, and when
0: they are, in our next episode, we might explain some of the background of why these laws exist and how you can disqualify a candidate, and how that's a challenge to democracy. Unless
1: we have much more exciting news, Until there is then, nothing more exciting than talking about the most integrity of in government. The polls, what's happening there?
0: Well, it's interesting. It's so hard to think of fabulous new headlines from the polls because they're so stable. But that's why we do have to keep our eyes on small trends. Now, some people are a little bit happy, and some people are a little bit less happy because of these tiny, tiny shifts. Teed, for example, I went back to the average of their polling from the time elections were called through the end of July. And they were polling on average 21.8, let's say 22 seats on average. Now, in August, after the lists closed, they went up to 23 seats. And since then, they've had an average of 23.75 seats. So they're regularly getting like 24 to 25 seats in polls now. They're up just a little bit, but the trend is pretty clear. The question is whether we can explain it. Now, who's not going up? That's Likud. Likud started the first phase of this election from the time elections were called until the end of July with a 34.7 seat average in the many polls. I'm looking at all the public polls here. At present, their average since the lists have closed on September 15th is down to 32.75. That's basically a two seat drop. Interesting because Bibi got all that he wanted in terms of bringing the religious Zionist parties together again. Of course, he's still coming in first by a pretty strong margin, but he doesn't like any sort of decline, does he?
1: No, and some of the pollsters have seen an even deeper uh, dip of Likud. I saw uh, Camille Fuchs, who is also Haritz's, uh pollster, uh, saying that in the last four months, Likud has gone from 37 in his poll to down to 31. So, yes, there is certainly a trend. You you, you were talking about the polling averages where, as is the case usually with average, the trend is slightly less sharp. But Likud have a problem. Lepid seem to be doing better. But the real question is, does this affect? the overall outcome of the blocs and yes Bibi wants to have more we're already seeing him start to cannibalize uh, religious Zionism in the way he's talking to uh, religious voters about not they, them not needing a sectorial party and he's also obviously trying to wipe out the Hele-Shaked party which doesn't cross the threshold what about them
0: that's exactly I'm so glad you raised that issue that's exactly what I was going to talk about at the bottom end of the surveys we see again of course there are parties who are doing fewer who are getting fewer votes but her she had a new poll in which that shows her party getting 2.2 percent which actually made her people very happy because that's a rise compared to some of the Other polls, but still far from crossing the threshold, and Netanyahu is doing everything to delegitimize voting for her party, even though it's kind of strange because if her party were to cross, that's another four seats, and she has said that she would go into a coalition with him. So that really, first of all, can you explain that? Why is he trying so hard to get her under the threshold? If she gets four seats, she would go into a coalition with him, and he would have a coalition.
1: But if she doesn't get four seats and she gets 3.1%, those are mainly voters who have listened to her and know that she wants. she's now planning to join it. That's a lot of votes that his potentially for his bloc, which would be wasted.
0: So now let's talk about the kind of people who are debating between all these parties, the Jewish home, Likud, Religious Zionism. That brings us to the community known as the Religious Zionist Community. And Angela, you've brought us a wonderful guest this week, so I'm turning it over to you.
1: So we've spoken here on the podcast at length of the two main battlegrounds of this election, the Arab sector, where turnout could well decide this election, and the Likud base, which Netanyahu is doing everything he can to mobilize, in the belief that there are hidden reservoirs of stay-at-home Likudniks, that if he can only bring to the polling boost on November 1st, will give him the majority which has been so elusive in the past four elections. But some observers believe that they may have detected another critical constituency, one which actually has regularly high turnout but what makes them unique is that in these elections they may contain within them this special sector the only group of voters which could perhaps switch between the pro and anti nathaniel blocs it's not a large group but even one percent changing size could determine the outcome i'm talking about the datilumi or national religious community most of whom are quite right-wing but a small section of whom are slightly more moderate and stuck in the middle and perhaps maybe looking slightly more favorably at one of the anti-Netanyahu parties. And to speak about that group and the Tilumi vote in general, there's no one better than our guest today, Yair Ettinger. Hi. Hi, Yair. Formerly of this parish, the religious affairs commentator of Israel's public broadcasting corporation, Khan, and the author of the groundbreaking book, Prumim, or in its uh, upcoming English title, The Great Split. It's a really fascinating book about the ins and outs of the national religious community in Israel, and also modern orthodox in America and some some other locations. Yayo, how are you doing? Hi, friends. How are you? Thank you for having me
0: today. Thanks for joining us.
1: So Dalia will, I think, open the batting here.
0: Okay, we have to settle some real scores here. Anshal and I have a deep disagreement. It's not even a disagreement. It's, it's more like a Talmudic argument over the definition of this community. So we just want to ask the expert, because I believe in expertise. How do you define the national religious community in Israel and how many of them are there as a portion of the electorate?
2: Okay, uh, as in a simplistic definition, it would be the a community that is between the Haredi Orthodox community, uh, ultra Orthodox Haredi, uh, and the secular sector. Um, we are talking about people who are Orthodox in their Way of lives in their religion, uh, they are still Zionist. They still uh, involved in in many Western values in many ways of, of the Israeli society, uh, but still Orthodox. They are in between.
0: Where do they? Uh, how how many... do they relate? Wait, I just to pin you down here. How do they relate to what we call the traditionalists, the Masoratim? Are they included or not included? Now we're,
2: it, it's it's getting complicated <laughs> because some of this community would define itself or in practice would be uh, Masotim. Not really uh, orthodox, not 100% orthodox, but on some kind of spectrum uh, of orthodoxy, of obeying the mitzvah, the Jewish law. Uh, so that would be, it's very hard to define. And on the other hand, not some of the, this community would be not so much involved in Western values. Some of them would be in their practice more like Charedim, so it's a spectrum. Uh, I would say most of them, you can define themselves, men as with knitted kippah and maybe uh, believe in some way in the importance, in the value of the state of Israel, sometimes uh, messianic values, uh, value of the state of Israel. It's very hard to define, but somewhere in between. And that is uh, why your second question is hard to answer. How many are there? How many dati le'umim are there? There are different ways of counting. Uh, In today's uh, research, it's very common to ask people how do they define themselves. And um, here you would find that uh, the the dati le'umim community is huge. There is a very famous uh, research done by uh, Tamar Herman from the Israeli uh, Democracy Institute uh, that Defines the team Lumim as 22% of the Jewish community in Israel. Although in practice, some of them are secular, define themselves as secular or even as Haredi. How come? So it's. Uh, I think this is a major thing to understand about self definition. People in this generation are on the spectrum. Sometimes they're not binary in their even in their social definitions, re- religious definitions, the, they would define themselves or identify with the religious Zionist community, even though they are not so much religious Zionists, they are not so much Orthodox, or on the other hand, very much Orthodox. Uh, that means, okay, uh, are you confused? No, I, <laughs> I, I think you're
1: making it very clear. But let's bring it down to the subject of our podcast and this is the upcoming election. So we have one party which is doing very well in the polls, maybe. It may be the third largest party in the next Knesset, which literally calls itself religious Zionism. Now, how accurate is the name that that party has or list in this case? It's the joint list, basically, which has adopted this name of religious Zionism. How accurate is that label?
0: Can I glom onto that question for one second? Why is it that I've spoken to one or two people who consider themselves religious Zionists in Israel who say that's not a fair name because it doesn't represent us?
2: Right. And that is why this is a brilliant move by Betsal Smotrich, naming his party beginning uh, t- 2021. Yeah, last uh, last, uh, last as, election, yeah. Yes, last election as Tzionudatit. He was never the mainstream Uh You can see it also from polls, how many people would identify as, let's say, the conservative, more conservative Datim Luhumim, this is a very, uh, a very small uh, portion of the Tatim Le'umim. He is at the end, of the right end of the Tatim Le'umim uh, and still calling himself Datit, which means, and Tzionudatit is a movement, is a, is a movement 120 years old, uh, Tzionudatit. And Bezalel Smotrich naming his party Tzionudatit is a brilliant act saying, okay i'm the tune of the teeth if you want to join tune of the teeth you would aden- identify with me or vote
1: for me so okay so obviously as dahlia said many people say they don't represent me and as you just said it's it's a brilliant move of a branding move by smotrich the leader of uh, of of the list mm-hmm. what percentage of people who vote for religious zionism do you think are what we
2: would normally call the tilumi?
0: And, and just to say, considering they're getting 12 to 13 seats in most surveys.
2: Okay, so uh, Bessal Smotich, this is a very complicated situation because Bessal Smotich with his Tzionudatit party, he is growing because of so many reasons and circumstances uh, and, uh, and coalition that he made. Uh, for The first one is with itama Bengvir. Itama Bengvir is the most radical right-wing, radical uh Factor in Israeli politics in the past he was illegitimate, and now he's a star. But his his uh, his support comes not only from the Tzim people who are religious. His support comes from people who are right wing supporters. Maybe in the past they would support Likud party. Maybe in the past they would support Shas party. Uh, not really the team not classic so the team So people who are attracted to the, his messages are uh not necessarily the team liuumi uh some of them are uh Bezalic Smotrich, in the past he never before uh 2021 uh ran separately he always did coalitions with more mainstream the team more more mainstream defeat and then i mean his his way uh maybe two mandates out of 120. But today he is on the wave. He is at the momentum of support. Uh, among the rest, because of what happened with Naftali Bennett, maybe we'll touch this uh, uh, <laughs> just now. Uh, but uh, um, um, what happened is that there is no mainstream, no mainstream datium lumim. So that's what I. That's why I said before that Vitaly Motrich did a brilliant move. There is no mainstream party for the team looming for Dati today other than uh, the only party which is much more to the right so
1: you, you mentioned Afzali Ben and this is a fascinating thing he is certainly a classic latino me though people would argue on the Dati light end of the spectrum but certainly mm-hmm. a man with a kipastro who went to bnei akiva and went to the educate came through the education system of the team and identifies himself as such and he's the first prime minister co- to come from that sector, and he's not even running this election. His party has totally imploded and disappeared. There's now a yetHK with something a bit different which will which we'll discuss aren't that aren't the team are we happy that they had a prime minister of their own
2: okay Naftali Bennett when he came to power in twenty twenty one uh he was already. Not a consensus. Let's say that his most uh, powerful rivals came from the Datiyomi community. So part of uh, the Team Liyomi supported the government, and I think less and less is, is, is the, the the percentage are. I don't know how many, but I think the majority did not support at the end Naftali Bennett's government. But some did. Yes, yeah, some voted for him. Some thought that this government with the left wing parties and arab parties is a good thing but most of the the team did not like that government what happened was that naftali bennett lost the whole support that he had which was not huge before the last elections he lost it so now there is no party for mainstream the team actually naftali bennett he was he served in the knesset for a decade and in this decade amazing things happened to the religious Zionist politics. Actually, the center of the religious Zionist um, community politics disappeared. And there was a huge vacuum. And into this vacuum entered Bezalus Smotrich.
0: What interests me is that it seems that Naftali Bennett began to lose support, as I think you were implying, before the last election. After all, you know his party only got seven seats. And it sounds to me like you were saying his rivals were coming from the national religious community before he made that very fateful, consequential decision to, to go into this coalition, to break ranks with Netanyahu. And could that be a result of the fact that he and Ayelet Shaked had tried to create something called the New Right, which was supposed to be a bridge between secular and religious people and a kind of, you know, um, a mixed community sort of party, as we say here. And maybe the harder, co- the hardcore, more right-wing... Uh, elements of the religious Zionist community were not that interested in such a thing, and they thought that was like some sort of a left-wing move even before he went into the coalition with the left. Is that part of the breakup? I mean, the, of part of the changes that you describe in the national religious uh, community as a voting community, as a constituency?
2: Yes. Okay. So let's let's remember that Naftali Bennett, when he entered into politics, it was in 2013. 2000- 12, uh, yeah, 12, he 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 got He won the, lead, he uh, won the, the leadership in 13,
1: he went to the Knesset the
2: first right, time, yeah. Right, right, right. And he was a rock star. People admired him all around. He was, he he did amazing thing to the Religious Zionist Party. He, this is a party that was with three seats in the parliament and it became, uh, it had uh, 12 after the first election that Naftali Bennett appeared. So what happened was that Naftali Bennett uh, lost his support uh, gradually, first when he he left the the Habayit HaYehudi, he left the party, he left the mainstream party, and said, "I'm I'm into trying to get a new coalition of soft right people who are traditional in in their uh, Jewish in their Jewish life, people who are not necessarily Orthodox." Uh, and then gradually he lost first the support of rabbis in the Sinodatit, Datit. Then he he went to into more centered uh, Israel, centered Israeli politics. And maybe most important, uh, uh, Angel, you are the expert. He did not go with Netanyahu. There was a, a crack between these people. And when the Israeli system, the political system is all about Netanyahu, Naftali Bennett lost support with Netanyahu's supporters, so this is part of what happened with Naftali Bennett when he formed the new government in 2021 with people from the left wing. And left wing is a very loaded uh, um, notion or, or, or word in the Team Leumi's life, the Team leumim politics, that he gradually lost almost all the support that he had. So let's bring his
1: to the here and now. Bennett's not running in this election, maybe he'll be back in politics at a later stage, but in the election taking place in three and a half weeks from now, this, what you call mainstream Datim Lomimist group, which is worth a a a few Knesset seats, probably three or four, they're being fought over quite intensely by Likud. Netanyahu's making a big play for them, he's doing special... Campaign videos. He's going to places like Modiin and Givat Shmuel and so on, and, and really trying to to find these people in their homes. And then on the other hand, you've got Benny Gantz's National Unity Party, which is doing the same and has actually got four quite prominent Dati candidates in the top ten realistic spots of its list. Is this a real? Is there a real type of voter who's thinking, should I vote Likud or should I vote Benny Gantz's National Union?
2: Actually, I think so, yes. And, you know, there is a really funny thing that's going on in, uh, uh, in in the last weeks. There is something that called uh, Alonim Le Shabbat. This is kind of, some kind of uh, newspapers. The, 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 are... the
1: show leaflets, yes.
2: Yes, and and, the, 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 and this is a very focused, uh, targeted audience to people who go to synagogues, to the team, the synagogues. And you see in these uh, pamphlets, in these papers, you see... Very similar ads from all kinds of parties in Israel, Likud, Kacholavan, uh, Ayelet Sheked, and of course Tzionud Datit. All of them are putting in their front the team or their candidates who are Datim Luumim, who wear knitted kippah or with uh, women with, uh, with a scarf on their head, uh, meaning we are the genuine, we are the authentic. A representation of you, the Team Lumin like us, vote for us, and this is really interesting because you see it in so many um, so many parties, and this is uh, maybe reflect reflects the um, the privatization or the 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 split, the big split that is going on now between not only parties, but I think in 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 the social life of the Team meme So, as you said, I think there is, uh, of course three mandates in the air that have to decide where are they taking their vote. They're, these people maybe in the past voted for Bennett and Shaked, or uh, even uh, o- older people used to vote for Mafdal, which was the classic, the Tilumi party, the, the party that uh, was the party of the camp. So these people, what are they supposed to, to vote today? So of course, some of them, or maybe um, a big portion of them, would vote for Smotrich because they have no other option. They say, "Okay, I'm interested in sectorial party." And even though not all of us are identify exactly with Teodor with Smotrich, maybe we have a problem with Ben Gvir. Uh, let's vote for him. Let's not be so much Feinschmecker. I
1: don't know how picky, say. It. Picky, yeah, Feinschmecker let's, let's is so great. Feinschmecker. I think if we you're like not know what Feinschmecker is, then. They have to look it up. Now, I have to ask (laughs) a wrap-up
0: question because we have to end, but I want to try to pin you down to a wrap-up question. If I think about that appeal, you know, they're putting all their religious candidates up front. On the other hand, there was a big split over whether to vote for a party that's going to go with Netanyahu or go into the anti-Netanyahu bloc. What about issues? What are people actually going to be voting on in the religious community? Is it going to be the coalition politics of Netanyahu or not Netanyahu? Is it going to be the number of religious representatives who wear the same knitted kippah as me or you? I should say, in the party, or is it going to be? You know what they're actually what they actually stand for in terms of policies. How can you characterize what might make up somebody's mind?
2: Okay, so this is, a, I think, it's a general question about every Israeli right now. What we what ask is, it uh, about every Israeli,
0: uh, but now we're asking
2: yeah. you about religious. <laughs> no, no Israelis. The, the, the every Israeli have to decide whether. Uh, he, he goes with the block, with Netanyahu's block or against the block. This is first first issue in these elections. Let's say that in, and this is not the first election. But other than that, the team meme are really afraid of the word left. okay Most of them are afraid of the word left. They're afraid of, of being identified as left. So people who are not so much afraid of this would vote for guns are in the center they're saying okay maybe i can i can i can vote outside the block um i think there is maybe maybe a little less than one mandate that would consider that voting for gantz outside of the of the block maybe gantz will go with netanyahu at the end they don't know so maybe it's it's legitimate but gantz is uh they they suspect gantz because gantz maybe has some people who identified as left but other people would vote for Ayela Chaked, and Ayala Chaked is also has also a problem because Ayala Chaked with the Beit Tud, they, they don't pass the threshold. So maybe uh, maybe it's it's not good to vote for her. So there is a there is a lack of something in each camp. And of course, some people who would not like to vote for Smotrich. There are many the Team Lumim who would not vote for Smotrich. Maybe because of Smotrich. Maybe because of Bengvi, which is too radical. For them, and maybe because of Noam, this is also a tiny, tiny party that is part of uh, Smotrich party, the home uh, uh, a coalition that is uh, anti anti gay and very much conservative. Uh, and
0: anti- we should remind people that Bibi was the one who con- who begged them to go back into the sure. party alignment sure. with them.
2: Sure, and of course Bibi and some people, I think maybe many of the Team meme at the end would vote for Bibi, and this is why. The li'umim is such a boiling uh, uh, place right now. All of these parties in the center and right and soft right are competing one another in, in, I don't know, they hope to get at least part of these three mandates that could define who would be the next prime minister. No doubt about it. The soft right and the religious Zionist community could decide who would be the next prime minister yeah.
1: thank you so much for being with us again. And I do recommend our readers, as soon as Yair's new book, The Big Split, comes out, order it. It's one of the most important books about Israeli society in the last few years. And Shanatavah Gmachatim Atava. Shanatavah to all of you. Uh, thank you for
0: being with us. And it's that time of our show again. It's my favorite time of our show. Angel, is it your favorite time?
1: Uh, if, it, if it's your favorite time, then I'm certainly on it's, board.
0: That's right. It's party time.
1: Yeah, and this this week is my turn, and you preempted me because he talked about the history and how old National Zionism, Religious Zionism, Datilumi, uh, as a movement is, which is my question this week. What is the, the oldest of Israeli parties?
0: Depends on how you define a party. Uh, which
1: can- Israeli party goes back furthest in history as an actual movement?
0: I'm going to guess Agudati Sleil.
1: So there are six or seven, depends how you also define exactly. their roots. Parties in the current Knesset, with roots going back roughly a century. Talk actually, about pie, of actually, actually, this one is not the oldest. It's the third or the first, fourth oldest. Let's which parties quickly which parties today have.
0: Roots in the roots very in old. In like a
1: century, sure, uh, early have, Zionism. I mean, of course, labor. anti Zionism yeah. in the case of Agudat Israel.
0: Labor. Agudat Israel. I'm talking about the roots. I'm not talking about their earliest names, right? Uh, no, no. Uh, name, Likud, names have changed. There's yes. been splits and mergers and so on. Absolutely. We have Agudat Israel. We have Likud. We have labor. Uh, we have the Communist Party, which is one of the oldest ones. I'm trying to think of the other three, two or three that you have in mind. So basically,
1: communists, 1919, the Palestinian. Communist Party, which was actually, the words were in Yiddish, because that's how they showed they were anti-Zionist, by speaking Yiddish and not in Hebrew. Agnati Suel, the other an, original anti-Zionist party, slightly earlier, the Katowice Conference in in 1912, so they're sort of in the middle. Likud is actually the youngest of the old parties. 1923, when Jabotinsky split with the Zionist movement, set up his own Zionist movement, and then we come to the two other streams one is the national, sorry, the religious Zionist stream, and the other is the Zionist socialist stream, who are the oldest ones, they're sort of competing. We talked about we, you mentioned Meretz and Mapam a moment ago, they're the young, actually. I didn't mention them, but I, of course, I had them yes, in mind. But they're, they're right sort of the them. younger part yep. of the Zionist, they're well, Meretz, which is partly Mapam, its roots are in Zion Small, which is 1920. Zion is the oldest Zionist socialist movement, which sort of with all kinds of little groups in in Eastern Europe, but really was founded in 1901 in Minsk. However, religious Zionism, what was then called Mizrahi, which is the acronym for Merkaz Rukhani, is the very oldest of the current Zionist movements, and it was founded in 1893 in Poland. That is impressive. It's maybe Naftali Bennett and Naya Shaked have finally buried it, but this is the oldest of... Israeli political parties. And with that, let's go to the future.
0: The future is for now, we're in suspense about the future. We're still in holiday mode, so we won't be here next week, but by the time we get back in two weeks, we'll be in the home stretch, which means we will know about things like the final decisions on disqualifications following Supreme Court rulings. We're going to see voter certainty firm up. Or we might see some late-stage political dramas or even shenanigans from our increasingly desperate politicians and candidates. And we'll be here to make sense of it all. Thank you, Enchil, for being my partner in this podcast.
1: Haxamach.
0: Thank you to Nahara Malkin, our producer and editor today. I'm Dalia Shenlin, signing off here at Haaretz Studios in Tel Aviv. Subscribe on your podcast app, listen faithfully, and we'll see you soon.